Are you ready this morning? Open up to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. We've got a rather lengthy segment for us, at least on Sunday mornings. We're going to look at 23 verses. Now, last week we found the Roman procurator Festus presenting to King Agrippa the reasons that he wanted him to hear Paul's case and why he needed and sought his assistance. And in Acts 25, 25 to 27, we're told, When I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, this is Festus speaking, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Now, the truth was, as we found in earlier chapters, that Festus had no decision to make at all in sending Paul to Caesar because it was his right as a Roman citizen. He had every right to appeal to Caesar, and under Roman law, he could stand before the emperor himself and have his case heard. Now, what Festus was more concerned about is sending him to Caesar without any reason and taking up the emperor's time. So he says to Agrippa, you know more about the laws and the customs of the Jews than I do, so let me know what you think, and maybe together we can formulate something to write as accusations against Paul legally when he heads off to Rome. Now, in the midst of all that we see going on in our world today, and I ventured out again last night, uh, actually I was this time in search of something specific that we normally use in our house, and it involves coffee, and uh, listen, don't mess with our coffee, amen? And I found my way over to Trader Joe's for this particular brand of coffee uh, creamer, is uh, sold exclusively and it's for my wife. And I was shocked to see all of the cases, I mean, literally empty. There wasn't one food item on the vast majority of the shelves. And people are in panic mode. People indeed are fearful of what's coming. And the fact is we are living in a time where all of these things are even being compounded upon the fact that there are Wars and rumors of wars, and there are troubles in the Middle East and concerns with uh, the political activities in Israel as well as the United States of America, the two governments who are in essence standing against the advance of globalism in our day. And the church and Christians are experiencing more and more persecution or even being viewed more negatively than at any other time, I believe, in recent history. And therefore, last week, we arrived at an exhortation through our title, and that is we need to keep looking up. We need to keep looking up right now, even as we did last week, and we'll need to do the same tomorrow. Now, as Festus presented the reasons that Paul would stand before Agrippa, we found that there are things that we could glean from that particular text, even though we never heard Paul speak, that are reminders for you and I concerning why we can keep looking up. The reasons were three and they are these. Our accusers are no match for our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We also found the truth will prevail in the end. And the darker the hour, the sooner we're going to be with Jesus. Somebody say amen. Now, we noted that those that Paul 
stood before were increasing in prominence and power as we have traveled through these texts. And he's on his way through the system to finally arrive in Rome. Now, he had stood before the Jewish council. He was detained by a Roman commander. He stood before a local governor or procurator. And now he's standing in front of the king of Judea. And he'll soon be sent with the intention of standing before the most powerful man in the world at the time, Caesar. But it didn't matter who Paul stood before, and it didn't matter the accusations against him. It didn't matter efforts to assassinate him. He was going to go to Rome because Jesus said he was going to go to Rome. And when Jesus says something, nobody can reverse it and stop it. Amen? Amen. Now, we need to remember that in these ever-darkening days, that just as Paul was getting closer to the end of his time on this earth, and he would be going home soon, so too the efforts to silence or even eliminate the church in these last days as they increase means that we are soon going home as well. Now, Paul is going to begin his testimony in our chapter. And he's going to give us the framework of the bones, if you will, of how we are to construct our own testimony and bear witness of what Christ has done in our lives. Paul's going to do three things as he addresses King Agrippa. He's going to recognize his sinful past. He's going to recount his personal conversion. And he's going to report on his own transformation. Now that brings us to our topic and title for today, because what we are going to hear from Paul, what we always need to be speaking is, and here's our title, Nothing But the Truth. Nothing But the Truth is our title this morning. And Paul is going to reveal the truth about his past. He's going to recall the conviction of God at his conversion. And then he's going to give witness of the power of God through his transformation and his commissioning by Jesus. Now, people need Jesus today. People need the Lord. They don't need programs. They don't need gimmicks. They don't need anything else that seeks to make the gospel more acceptable to the masses. They need nothing but the truth. Listen, we're all sinners. Hey, I'm glad to hear that. We're all sinners. At least we recognize it. And therefore, we all need a savior. And those who are saved are called to live for Jesus and not themselves. And that, too, is nothing but the truth. Now, in John 8, 31 to 36, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth does what? It shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. So how can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered to them, or answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, I love this line, you shall be free, what? Indeed. Now, the statement of the Jews in response to Jesus is rather bizarre, but it's not unlike that of many today. Now, the word bondage means slavery or servitude. And the Jews were slaves of the Egyptians for 430 years. They were captive and servants of Babylon for 70 years. And at the time of this statement, they were under the authority of Rome. Now, many people today make that same claim. 
I'm not a slave of anything. I'm not a slave of sin. I'm not under bondage to anything or anyone. Yet the truth is just the opposite. They are controlled by the lust of the flesh, eyes, and that influences their moral decision. And the pride of life defines their pursuits and goals. (coughs) Excuse me. And they are slaves to those things. Now, Paul's defense will outline for us how we should present our testimony and transformation as new creations in Christ whose old life has passed away. Now, in the midst of all the lies and deceit, lies and deceit we have seen employed against Paul, his defense before Herod Agrippa II is nothing but the truth. You ready? Stand and read with me, please. Acts 26 will start with verses 1 through 11. Acts 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from beginning among, excuse me, my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, Hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I did cast my vote against them. And... I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And Lord, we ask your aid this morning and that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. And Lord, we know that our witness and testimony is necessary at all times and in every season of history. But Lord, people are in fear today. And Lord, so I pray that you would help us, Lord, to frame through the testimony of Paul our own and go out and tell people about Jesus and that he is the world's only Savior. We ask that you help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as Herod grants permission for Paul to speak, Paul motions with his hand, as was the custom of the orators of the day, when they would begin to address the magistrate they sat before, which in this case was a king. Now he says, as he did to Festus, I'm more than happy to give witness or testimony concerning the accusations that are being leveled at him by his fellow Jews. Now he respectfully recognizes King Agrippa's understanding of Jewish laws and customs and asks that the king of Judea be patient as he presents his case. I want to pause here for a moment for a strategic point of observation when we share our truth 
and our testimonies of what Christ has done in our lives. And that is from Proverbs eighteen nineteen, where it says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle, or they're not easily broken through. Now, Paul could have said, Who are you to judge me, Agrippa? You're sleeping with your sister. Turn or burn. Now, he could have said that, and it would have been nothing but the truth. But it would have also been nothing but a shortcut to having Paul's head separated from his shoulders. Now, listen, when we share our testimony, we set the tone for the conversation. And it's important to note that we are likely entering a conversation that the other party doesn't want to have. I remember some years ago, we took a group of 88 teenagers over to Hawaii preceding a harvest crusade that was going to take place there. And we went out on the strip of Waikiki every night and shared the gospel of Christ uh, four nights leading up to the crusade that would take place there at the Aloha Stadium. And we heard over and over and over from people, I didn't come here to hear this. I came here to party. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about all of that stuff. So what did we do? Uh, these teenagers wound up witnessing to prostitutes and sharing the love of Jesus with them as they walked the strip at night. And these crazy kids were dragging my very tired carcass home at 2 a.m. because they were out on the streets sharing Jesus. But it wasn't a receptive audience. Now, listen, Paul could have been snarky with Herod. But he was instead respectful to a man who came from a long line of Christian persecutors and despots. And Herod Agrippa was a vile man, just like his predecessors. Yet, Paul begins his defense against the accusations of the Jews respectfully, as he first establishes that their accusations are based on Paul's position regarding Jesus. Now, he establishes that they would all bear witness if they'd be willing to testify on his behalf, which they wouldn't, that he was once like them. He was even a zealot against the Christian faith. He lived in active opposition to Christianity, even to the degree of persecution, imprisonment, and also voting for the death of many who followed Christ. Now, in Acts 25, 19 to 20, we're told when the accusers stood up, They brought no accusation against him of such things as I suppose, Festus said. But some had questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be what? To be alive. Now, here Paul says, my accusers themselves believe in the resurrection from the dead, with the exception, obviously, of the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, For this hope, which is shared by the majority of my fellow Jews, I stand accused. Now, the foundation for Paul's statements would be found in places like Isaiah 53, 9 through 11. The whole chapter is about the Messiah and his life experience and what he came into the world to accomplish at his first coming. And we're told they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. 
He shall see his seed, or the fruit of his efforts. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And Daniel would add in 12 to many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall what? Awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting content. Now, Jesus' grave was indeed made with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And when his soul was made an offering for sin, in order for him to see his seed or see the fruit of his death on the cross and his shed blood, that implies he is going to have to rise again. And the fact is, his days are prolonged because he is not only alive, he is alive forevermore. And he is the first to raise from the dead and remain alive. Even though others have been raised from the dead, they all died later. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily to make intercession for you and I. Now, there has to be a resurrection from the dead for these things to be true. And Daniel makes the fact indisputable that it was a doctrine that the Jews would believe. And Paul says to Agrippa, why should God being, being able to raise the dead be thought an incredible thing? If God can speak all things into existence, he can certainly raise the dead. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't the concept of a bodily resurrection that the Jews had a problem with. It was the person that Paul said raised from the dead and is yet alive that was the issue. For Jesus to be raised from the dead, for Jesus to remain alive, for Jesus to see the fruit of the labor of his soul would mean that he's the Messiah, the Mashiach bin David, the Holy One of Israel, and that for the Jews was then and is today the problem, the problem with Jesus. Now, remember what we read earlier from John 8, and the Jews claimed never to be in bondage to anyone? Now, they preface this statement with the claim We are Abraham's children and also said to Jesus, how can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, the Jews argument was we're Abraham's descendants. We don't need anyone to deliver us from sin. What we need is a deliverer from Rome who will destroy them and put us in control. Now, Paul highlights how deeply committed he was to destroying what he now believes, that he sought to force Christians to blaspheme, meaning to recant their faith or deny Christ. So Paul goes from willing to kill for what he is now willing to die for, and he now has been set free himself by the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he includes his past in his testimony because it was nothing but the truth. And here's what we can learn from Paul's practice of sharing that uh, within his own testimony. Here's something I think we need to hear today. You ready? Listen, our objective is to tell people they need Jesus, not just make them want him. Our objective is to tell people they need Jesus, not just make them want him. And let me explain that a little bit as we go this morning. Now, Paul recounts his past so he can highlight through his present that he was a sinner and he needed a savior and he was a Jew, even a Pharisee. 
Now, let me remind us all this morning, Jesus is not a product. Jesus doesn't need to be marketed. He is a savior who needs to be proclaimed. And he needs to be proclaimed as the one that is necessary for salvation. Now, I have mentioned in time past a misguided overemphasis of the doctrine of grace. And I'll say again, it's a wonderful thing. But let me also remind you, Jesus never taught on grace. In the Romans road, which is how we model our giving testimony of Christ and how we lead someone to Christ. There's no mention of grace on the Romans road. The Greek word for grace or charis is used 131 times in the New Testament. Once in Luke, three times in John. That's a total of four in the four gospels. 10 in Acts, 33 or 24 in Romans. 33 times it's used as a closing salutation. 64 times it's used to describe an attribute of God. Now, listen, if there is a doctrine we ought to overemphasize today, it should be the atoning power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be talking about today because the blood of Christ points to man's need for a savior. And the misguided emphasis of this wonderful reality of God's grace, and we are saved because God is gracious. Amen? Not because of works. We can't boast about anything. We are saved because our God is a gracious God. And grace today has morphed the method of our message into trying to get people to want Jesus instead of proclaiming that all people need Jesus. Now, much of today's focus is getting people to a place where, place where they say, I want Jesus because of what he can do for me. Instead of saying, I need Jesus because I'm a sinner and he died for me. Now in John 8, 21 to 23, Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus here, candy coating, obviously. Kidding. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will what? Die in your sins. Now, do people need to hear today, come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy and wise? Or do they need to hear today, come to Jesus, because without him, you can't get to heaven and you're going to go to hell. Now, that's not a conversation many people want to have, but it's one they all need to hear. This is what we need to tell others, what Paul was recounting within his own history and past life experience. Now, knowing Jesus is wonderful. Excuse me? Knowing Jesus is wonderful. Life is better with Jesus. But the fact is, Vance Havner said, much of the church today has become the old Adam Improvement Society. In other words, how to make your old nature better. How indeed to have a better life experience. How to have a more rich life. How to have a more healthy life. And the fact is, listen, Jesus came into the world to save sinners And sinners need a Savior, and without a Savior, we can't access heaven. That means the church is telling people, come to Jesus for what he can do for you, instead of come to Jesus because only he can save your sinful soul. 
And Paul recognized his sinful past to Herod, and he spoke nothing but the truth. And then he moves on to recount his conversion to the king of Judea. We'll pick that up in 12 to 18. So read along with me, please. And Paul says, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by what? Faith in me, me being Jesus. Now, while thus occupied is somewhat like Paul saying, you know, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing, just minding my own business, so to speak, and what he thought he was supposed to be doing was persecuting Christians. And he says, at the midpoint of the day or at high noon, I saw a light that was brighter even than the noonday sun, and all of us fell to the ground. Now, for the third time in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to record Paul's conversion story, and he adds to the previous accounts that the Lord gave Paul specific details and directives concerning his future ministry. Now, he will be delivered from the Jews, he is told, which implies the very situation that he is in at that point in time, and that he would go to the Gentiles like he had and will do when he travels to Rome. Now, he's also told by the Lord the purpose of his commissioning, to open their eyes to the darkness that they are in, that they may see the light and no longer be subjects of the power of Satan. He also adds to be forgiven and receive an inheritance that is exclusive to those with faith in Christ. Now, then Paul mentions those with faith, or it is mentioned to Paul, those uh, with faith in Christ are sanctified by him. Now, I heard a pastor say one time, troubled me greatly, he bragged that he, in all of his years of preaching, some 30 years of preaching, he had never used the word sanctified. Now, because that's not something we have in our normal everyday speak. That's not something to boast about. That's something to be ashamed of. It's a biblical word, amen? So we don't skip it. We find out what it means. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 7, we're told this is the will of God. What are the next two words? Your sanctification. So why would you never use the word sanctification if it's the will of God? That you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. <coughs> Excuse me, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Now listen close. 
Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, sanctification is a this life manifestation of our salvation that comes along with the forgiveness and the guarantee of a future inheritance that we all enjoy, which is proven by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every born-again believer. And sanctification is the will of God in every aspect of life, even though the specific application of 1 Thessalonians is to that of sexual purity. And Paul is dealing with something that was obviously an issue within the city of Thessaloniki. Now, sanctification, by definition, means purification or simply holiness, which manifests itself in the heart and life. Now, it has been defined as the result of consecration. Consecration, we don't find in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament word, but that word simply means to be set apart. What are we set apart to? We're set apart to holiness. We are set apart to live in purity for God. Now, Romans 6, 1 to 4, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his what? Death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk out in newness of life, different than what we were when we were without him. Now, this is what sanctification is. It is walking in newness of life, which again implies that something in all of us needs to change, and it's a change that can only be brought about by a personal relationship with Christ. And Paul had a change of heart. He had a change of mind. He needed one. He received that. All the Jews need the same change. All the Gentiles need to see the light, meaning enlightenment or understanding regarding their need for a savior. And all Jew and Gentile alike today needs to know that Christ is the only savior. Now, this leads to the next component of sharing nothing but the truth when we give witness of what Christ has done in our lives. Listen, this morning, the true gospel will always call people to repentance. The true gospel will always call people to repentance. Now, if there is a true gospel, that implies there is a false gospel. And therefore, a false gospel cannot save. Now, Paul addressed this directly in Galatians 1, 6 to 9, where he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word, by the way, pervert means to become its opposite, in essence, robbing it of its soul-saving power. But even if we or an angel from heaven preached any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be what? There's just no way to make that positive. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema or let him be accursed. Now, if a gospel message is preached that offers only heaven, but offers or mentions no personal holiness or repentance, it's a false gospel. And Jesus told Paul that those whom he sent, to whom he was sent, needed their eyes open to their own sinfulness in order to turn them from darkness to light, 
which is metaphorically used for evil and good. To turn them from evil, Satan is evil, and and, uh, influencing the world, and turn them to good. Now, in Paul's testimony was a record of his own conversion. Walking in darkness, being made to walk in the light. Now, this is to be part of our own testimony as well when we tell people they need Jesus because they are sinners. But if we fail to tell them the evidence of our own salvation being manifested in sanctification, they'll have no way to know if they are actually saved, nor will we have the ability to have confidence in our own salvation. And the fact is, if we have a repentanceless gospel, people can run the risk of thinking they're saved when they are really not. Now, Jesus came, listen close. He came not just to get us into heaven. He came to change us while we live here on earth. He came not only to get us into heaven, he came to change us while we live here on earth. Now, the true gospel is always going to include a call to repentance, to turn from darkness to light. And that, my friends, is nothing but the truth. Now, Paul turns to his transformation. We'll bring our second point uh, up again in a few minutes. 19 to 23. Let's keep reading. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. So Paul basically gives us the interpretation of verse 18 of what Jesus was talking about. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, Paul tells Agrippa that he did go to Damascus, but he had his purpose changed along the way. He declared to those in Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, and then in the Gentile regions that they should repent and do the works that prove their lives have changed. Now he said, this is why I was arrested. This is why they tried to kill me, because of how my life changed because of my belief concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now Paul then says, but God helped me. And he's why I stand here today as witness to people of all walks of life, the great and the small, telling everyone the same things written in the law and the prophets about the coming Messiah and that Jesus is the one who fulfilled them by his suffering through his death and his resurrection. Paul says, my goal was to enlighten the Jew first and then the Gentiles to the fact that Jesus is the savior of the world. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2 reminds us as Paul pleads and says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The era of dead sacrifices was over. Now we are to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, then he explains how to do that. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transform by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, here's where we need to dial in. Listen this morning. 
Transformations are what proves what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will. And Paul gives his as the reason for his arrest and plots to assassinate him. And they're all because on his way to Damascus, sent by the same group who now accuses him, that he met Jesus and Jesus changed his life radically. Now, I want you to think about this in light of our second point. If repentance is unnecessary or should not be presented in our gospel messages, some say, and if sanctification is an outdated term and not to be mentioned in our speak today as Christians, and transformations aren't a universal experience among the saved, then how do we prove that what we believe is true? What proof do we have? Because if personal transformations aren't part of salvation, if repentance is not part of salvation, if these things are not part of the gospel and saving faith, then all we are left with is words with no proof, just like every other religion. But the fact is, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be what? Deceived. Deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, what's the next word? Were some of you, but you were washed. You were what? Sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Paul would then say in Ephesians 4, 25 to 31, Therefore, putting away what? Lying. Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Keep short accounts, in other words. Nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even at Costco, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, listen, when we're washed in the blood, we start walking in the spirit. And when we walk in the spirit, we no longer fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The thief proves he's not a thief by working instead of stealing. The liar proves he's not a liar by telling the truth instead of lying. And listen, if there's no sanctification of the saved, there's no proof of their salvation, just claims of something that cannot be verified. Now, here's our final fact that is nothing but the truth this morning. Listen, nothing, say nothing. Nothing validates the claims of the Christian faith more than transformed lives. Nothing validates the claims of the Christian faith more than transformed lives. Listen, if Jesus came and claimed to be the Holy One of Israel, yet never walked on water, never miraculously fed the masses, never healed the sick, 
never cast demons from the possessed, if he never raised the dead, if he never healed the lepers, if he never answered unasked questions, if he died on the cross between the two thieves he hung between and was never heard of or seen again, what proof would we have that he indeed is the Messiah? The fact is, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 says, For I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Please note the action associated with the word. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained in the presence, or most of those 500 people who saw him all at the same time are still alive. But Paul says some have died. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now listen, Jesus isn't physically here now. So where is the visible proof of the Christian faith? It's us. It's the church. It's our transformed lives. Now listen, this is why the devil wants the church to delete repentance from the gospel. This is why he has convinced many that grace removed any necessity of sanctification. Because that puts Christianity in the category of other belief systems, and that is unproven by anything other than written evidence. The truth is we are the ones that prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How? By not being transformed by the world. Now, in Mark 16, 19 to 20, after the Lord had spoken to the twelve, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the what? The word through accompanying signs. Somebody say, now, sometimes the Lord confirms his word by what he does through us. Sometimes the Lord confirms his word by what he does to us. And Paul tells Agrippa, minding my own business, on my way to Damascus, to persecute the followers of Jesus. And as I was on my way, I became one. And when I did, my life changed, so did the reason for my existence. This is why they arrested me. This is why they tried to kill me. Now listen, the world is in a panic right now. And they need Jesus. They need the peace that passes all understanding, that guards the heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And listen, they will know that we know him when they hear and see how much he changed us. And we tell them nothing but the truth. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we are thankful this morning for your matchless word. Thank you for this testimony of Paul and help us to use it much like when the disciples asked you how to pray you gave them a model a format so to speak not something to be repeated but something to give them structure for their prayer life and so too we find this with Paul we find a way to present the gospel to the great and small call them from darkness to light recognizing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so Lord if we are going to overemphasize anything in these last days. May it be the blood of Christ and the necessity of it to cover our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you are yet today unwilling that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And we pray, Lord, that we would not shy away from this particular issue because it is 
part of the power of the gospel. So, Lord, help us in that, in these times that are indeed perilous. And, Lord, may we recognize that those around us are facing this uncertainty and this fear without the hope of heaven, without one who can grant them a steadfast spirit. So help us to be bold in our faith and engage in those conversations that other people may not even want to have, but need to. And help us, Lord, to be courteous and kind and do the things we see with Paul, even before this horrible man, King Agrippa, who's sleeping with his own sister and yet holding a hearing over Paul, the apostle who served and loved you. So Lord, help us to learn these things and take them with us and do them, I pray. And we pray them in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.